at me that way in years You dreamed me up and left me Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Studs radio show about comics. My guest today is Dave McKeon. Uh, Dave's work is something I've been following for quite some time as a young man picking up uh, signal noise and violent cases in uh, the library. And we're kind of one of those formative moments of kind of realizing the bigger context of comics. And so super hyped to be chatting with Dave today about his latest book, Celluloid, as well as some of the other work. I was going through my bookshelves and uh, there's a stack of it. Uh, Cages, um, Squink, um, the three collections you did of postcards, as well as, picking up my stack here, the uh, <laughs> pictures that tick, and uh, one that I found long ago thankfully at a used bookstore a small book of black and white lies um, and much more it was, it's quite interesting like uh, how much you have out there for um, comics and the art being part of what you're doing uh, when you include all the illustration work as well as doing film now it's uh, you must have a pretty regimented creation schedule um i wouldn't really call it regimented <laughs> um it's i you know i just like uh hopping around doing different things so uh i, I tend to have a few things going on at the same time which unfortunately means that some of them take a, a many years to finish but uh, i'd rather sort of live with them for a while and make sure that they're worth finishing mm-hmm. um is that your comics work because I was when I was reading pictures that tick there's a thing at the beginning where you kind of talk about what comics mean to you as far as a creative outlet and so I'm curious if you could touch upon that um, well I, I mean I comics are my first love really and um, and I don't really feel like I've ever stopped doing them although I've realized many years go by in between books but it doesn't really feel like I ever really stopped doing them um, uh, so comics were my entry into drawing and storytelling and reading when I was very young um, and then into other worlds of fiction and 
um, looking back at the history of comics, the, comics have always been part of my life, and I love the medium. I still think it's incredibly powerful, um, and I still think it's underused, even even though there've been some astonishing books published in the last, you know, ten twenty years. Um, so they're always around. I'm curious what you mean by underused, because this is something kind of Baron Story was touching on when I was talking with him about how um, kind of expectations and how comics can spread out creatively. Um, well, they, you know, they tended to sort of alight on a certain style uh, and then just stick with it. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, the um, sort of mainstream American sort of superhero. Uh, stuff that was so important during the war and had a purpose during the war um, uh, you know that style of, of drawing just just seems to stick and, and you get endlessly repeated versions of the same thing uh, unfortunately now out of context so something like Captain Marvel or Superman or something really seems to make sense in in, uh, in 1940 but um, for, for me now it just doesn't um, and then, you know, underground comics, again, a huge impact with a certain kind of attitude and a certain kind of style. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's, there's so much more to explore. And there's a whole world of, of possibilities. It's amazing that, you know, photography isn't used more in comics because everybody takes photographs. Everybody. Everybody tells stories with photographs. Everybody, you know, goes to an event, a wedding or something or other, a holiday, takes a bunch of pictures in a sequence and then comes back and shows them in a sequence. That's, that's all you're doing, really, storytelling photographs. Um, and there's so many uses of comics and so many ways of telling stories uh, that can you know, go off in different directions. and uh, They don't have to follow linearly from left to right and they don't have to be in panels and they don't need word balloons. None of these things define comics, I don't think. I think the only thing you need is some sort of narrative, and that can be as broad as you like. It can be abstract. It can be a documentary. It can be, you know, just watching the seasons go by, or it can be the entire history of the world. Um, and all you need is imagery of some kind, and that's non-specific. It can be photographs of sculptures. It can be abstract marks on the page. Mm-hmm. And everything else. So you know what I mean. There's just it seems to me a world of possibilities um, that very rarely really gets exploited, and certainly isn't. I mean, you know, the vast majority of possibilities really aren't of any interest to your regular comic book publisher in exploring. No. It's really down to the creators to head off into that territory. Is that one of the reasons um, with celluloid coming out from? Fanographics, where they kind of get that bigger picture idea. Um, I, that was that came out of the blue, really. I was really ha really delighted that Fantagraphics um, picked it up. I did the book for Delcor in France, mm -hmm. um, and originally I was going to self-publish it because it seemed like such an odd oddball thing to do. Um, and at the time, I quite because of the nature of it, because it's an erotic book, I, I quite liked the idea of having a secret project that didn't have any type on it at all, didn't have my name on it, it had no name, you know, the book had no title, and was just a sequence of pictures, and you had to know about it, and you had to know where to go to get it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but that kind of went by the by, and, Del and Guy Delcourt offered to publish it in his line, 
um, and then from there it's it's wandered around the world and picked up other publishers. I'm really happy that Fantasy Graphics have done it. I'm not sure any other publisher in America of comics would uh, would have been uh, brave enough to do it. I'm gonna have to agree with you. <laughs> um, Good. How's <I'm> that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, well, I mean, it, I've been thinking about that, like as far as like publishers really willing to take on graphic material like that. And I mean, Fantagraphics kind of has a track record with that, with uh, the Eros line. Um, yes, yes. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I'm being disingenuous to Kitchen Sink and uh, to not to Kitchen Sink to Dark Horse and some of the others who are terrific publishers and they've, mm-hmm. they've done, you know, they've published some of my books and other publishers like Drawn Quarterly have done some amazing uh, books in the past. But I just actually, since it came up, I just thought actually, Fantagraphics is a very good home for it. Um. It's one of the fascinating things about Celluloid is because you've done it wordless, is it's been able to work in all these languages, like I say, where they came from Delcor. Um, was that something you had in mind when you're creating it? Is to have this be a really easily to engage work narratively? Um, I I like wordless comics. Um, I, I think if you, I think there, there seems to be an obligation to use words, and I don't think there need be. Um, and if you're going to choose to use words, whether it's dialogue or text, I think that they, you know, the, that the, the text really has to be doing something. It needs to be there. It's, it's got to have a job. It's got to be really adding something. And there was really no purpose in it. You know, I mean, most, uh, you know, films involving sex scenes or whatever, the dialogue is usually pretty perfunctory. Um, and unless you're really using the dialogue to do something unusual and specific, um, I didn't really see a purpose to having it there. And once I headed down that sort of way of thinking about it, I couldn't really see any reason to have any text there at all. And just to tell the whole story as a as a as a visual thing seemed uh, seemed closer to um, music or something like that. You just ex- you just experience it and you flow with it, and hopefully. Um, uh, get into the atmosphere of it. I think there's something you said about the rhythm, definitely, like the music, like there's a flow to it. Yeah, I hope so. A, I hope so. Kind of a passion, maybe. Um, I was looking at your artwork in Celluloid. It's very, it feels very different to me, um, especially when considered with the other comic work, where the figures feel a lot fuller. Like there's almost like a three-dimensional quality to them, right? Um, and so I'm curious about the the different approach to this book, especially when you go into this other world. Um, well, the I mean the idea was that um, usually, I mean usually in a in a in a uh, an erotic film, it's pretty repetitive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there is, you know, a series of sex scenes, and they they go through this sort of series of uh, steps, um, and uh, it, they're almost all the same. Um, and I just thought there must be a better way around that, some other way around that. So each sequence deals with one one sensation or one one aspect of of a, of a sexual scene, um, and then. Once it's been set up like that, the pictures really are to try and get the most out of that particular feeling. 
um, the, the colours and the style of it are dictated by uh, that particular um, moment. Um, so each sequence is different. Each each sequence has a has a different visual style because uh, it's you know some, sometimes it's very gentle and delicate, and sometimes it's much more active and passionate and. You know, all these things, that's the great thing about a drawing or a painting as opposed to photography or film. You can vary it completely. A, a line is loaded with meaning, and whether you use paint or whether you use colour or tone, these all come with associations and feelings, so you can match them up. Um, and that just seemed to be, a, 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 you know, a, a nice challenge. I, I mean, whether it's successful or not, I don't know. But that was the idea going into it, to try and make the marks and the colours all be there for a reason, and the reason dictated by the feelings and emotions in that particular uh, part of the sexual coupling. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? No, it does make complete sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was kind of reading as much work as I could over the last couple of days, and there's one quote in specific from Cages that stuck out to me, and I wonder if you can touch on it in reference to um, celluloid, where the artist character in Cages says talks about um, what he draws is what he's picturing inside his head, and I'm wondering how accurate were you able to get that image? Is that something you personally, as an artist, are trying to capture? Um, well, I guess so. I mean, that's that's what you're trying to do, and and. Uh, Certainly, when I started, I had a very low hit rate at uh, getting the ideas that I had in my in my mind, and then sort of doodling them to sort of roughly represent them on paper, and sort of imagining somewhere in between being the finished thing. I could never really get it down on paper, uh, and it didn't work at all until well, you know, getting into cages, and then after that was a bit better. When I got a computer, that helped a lot because a lot of the things I wanted to do were very translucent and transparent and images through images and layered images and there was a density to them and the Photoshop really helped me with that. When I got into using Photoshop, it was like they'd written the program for me. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that, that's why I did such a lot of work with it because it just felt so personal. Everything was exactly what I wanted it to be, uh, and seemed to be, you know, creative with a with a view to getting the images that I wanted down on paper. Um, and then uh, after you know using Photoshop a lot, I went back to drawing, and uh, and now uh, I'm drawing and painting a lot more than I am using the computer. Uh, but some so for some reason, having gone through that that little pathway, um, I'm feeling a lot happier about the images that I'm making, they are closer to what I have in mind. Um, and celluloid is pretty close to what I had in mind in the end. I think that I think what I missed was something of the t small gestures and the just noticing little time passing. And I think if I did another one, I would like to do another one, um, it wouldn't be a, a story told in large single images. It would be much smaller little pieces of time, little moments caught. Um, uh, I think I think that would be a good second book to do. It is interesting how you can play with the um, 
with paddling and the movement to the figures to really like almost set a tempo of yeah. the rhythm. Well, I, uh, this was something I really tried to do with in the book, in the book called Cages. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, all those little subtleties about human expression that are really rarely seen in comics. So, you know, it's the big gestures that you usually see. Um, you know, people hitting other people through walls. Uh, you, you rarely see just those subtleties of conversation. You know, the fact that people start with one thing in mind and then halfway through the sentence you can see that they sort of veer off into something else and the, the pauses and the, the uh, expressions and the, uh, you know, all those uh, body language, all those little things that I think really make humans human. Uh, that's what I really love about, um, you know, good film, good acting in a film, for example. Um, so that's what I try to get out of cages. Um, and that's not really so much what celluloid is about, but maybe if I did another one, uh, we could try and... Honey-tongued sonnet 
Now sugar, now spice, now je ne sais quoi But dog roll with nothing much on it But the one thing I did learn in English Is she favours the tongue that is true So for all of the blood, the sweat and the tears Thank you my darling, thank you Cages and with celluloid, like both of them seem to have like different themes of like kind of cross, um, not narrative cross, or like um, kind of artistic responses or artistic influences. Where with uh, Cages is very much about literature and music, kind of meeting each other. And I was trying to think with celluloid, like w what am I seeing in there? And and what I wrote down. Uh, kind of different, not as like straight up literature, music bam, I wrote down flesh and film um, you wrote down what, sorry? flesh and film right <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to figure out why why those particular words like jumped into my head um, but I couldn't quite nail it down other than it being a lot of flesh and utilizing <laughs> film <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm wondering for yourself like was there a kind of meeting of artistic expressions in it that you were trying to capture as you do with all your work like kind of many things together um god that's hard to say uh, <laughs> or is that just two out there <laughs> um well the book's called celluloid so mm -hmm. it obviously relates to film to a degree and and my i mean my feeling about film is that it is a, a kind of a dream really um, it is a strange thing to do you walk into a cinema into this black space with a bunch of other strangers and then we all focus on this little piece little moment in time this little focused piece of storytelling that has a tremendous illusion of reality but is very very different from reality totally fabricated it's all it's edited and the edits are, are now seamless in our minds because we we understand the language of film so much but that that really has nothing to do with reality um so it's a sort of strange dream version of reality no matter how even if you're watching a um a, a, you know a kitchen sink drama a neo-realist film it's still a dream um so that's that i think comes across in that's why i called it celluloid and uh, had the the story of, of of somebody getting closer and closer to this sort of dream narrative, which is in a strip of film. Um, that's I'm not really answering your question. No, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> uh, that, that's where I started with it anyway. So she so she the idea is she starts in reality, but she's just a drawing, and then she ends in this dream, completely fabricated, unreality. But by then she's become photographically real. 
there's I, I can't help but think of like Gertie the dinosaur. Like, oh, really? As far, no, as, far as concept, I, 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 that wouldn't have been my first, uh, you know, association of it just, uh, a pornographic book going to Gertie the dinosaur. Well, I'm just thinking of of not not the book help. itself, <laughs> but just just your description there of like someone walking in and you know interacting in a way, and it's just like I just kind of that kind of jumped out at me. Yeah, like obviously I very so. different I work. I think, <laughs> I think I see the very circuitous uh, train of thought there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, sorry. Sorry, Mr. McKay. Okay. <laughs> um, when I was looking through the uh, a small book of black and white, uh, some of the images in there kind of reminded me of where you're going eventually with celluloid, so I'm wondering if that was something where you're kind of using these ideas and kind of fleshing it out through time to, to get to where you did get to with the book. Um, yes, probably, but the the thing is, I think all, I think, you know, most of the books that I've done, the books of photographs and cages and some of the short stories and a short film that I did called Neon and, and now Celluloid, they always have, um, you know, most of the elements in, in, in my life that are important to me. There's usually something about, uh, creativity or, or, um, there's usually a creative person or it's about seeing the world through drawing or painting or photography or film or writing or something like that because that's important to me and there's usually a strong sense of place because and it's usually a place that I really love so it, the things are set locally to me here in England or they're in, neon is set in Venice or something like that and then you know there's a there's usually a, a bunch of things that are important to me and uh, my you know, sex isn't in everything that I've done, but it's part of my life, and I don't see why it should be uh, extracted from my life just because it's, um, you know, it's sex, and and usually that's associated with pornography or, you know, dumped off in this strange corner over here. So I'm quite happy for it to be, to exist in my work. I, I, I was going to put a, 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 a sort of basically very straight, honest, but full-on sex scene into cages and they do the, the couple in it do go up on the roof and they do make love but I ended up thinking for the sake of four sort of ex-certificate pages in a 500 page book it kind of it would be a shame to have to shrink back the book and call it an adult book for the sake of four pages so I found another solution to it but I always fancied coming back to that so that's why you know ended up doing celluloid in the end um, but I really don't have a have a problem with de trying to deal with sex. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of my life. It's part of most people's lives, as opposed to violence, which hopefully is not part of my life. I certainly try and give it a wide berth. Um, I've, I've rarely seen um, violence in my life or on the street, fortunately. I don't live in a very dangerous place. Um... And I don't find violence particularly entertaining or amusing or... Uh, so I'd rather just avoid it. So it seems strange that so many books, so many comics are obsessed with violence. They're so violent. And yet, um, you know, it really plays a very small part in our lives. Whereas, you know, sex, hopefully, if we're lucky, um, <laughs> it plays part in our lives almost every day. Even if it's just, uh, you know, you wake up next to your partner and 
and uh, you know see them and touch them there and you know it doesn't have to be sex all the time but you know what I mean it's part mm. of our lives all the time well, and, that's uh, and, can be, and it's perfectly fine and healthy and normal and yet it's this terrible taboo so um, I'm, I'm perfectly happy just putting it into all my projects in very subtle ways gentle ways or in celluloid a bit more directly it is quite unfortunate that comics seems to be stunted in a way where and, and I should be careful making such a grand statement um, I don't mean it to be grand I mean to be specific mm. areas um, where where it is hard for folks to be able to work on with sexual content um, if it wasn't for like the underground movement really putting it out in the forefront you know there wasn't a lot of easy discussion of it or easy access to it um, and yeah like it's like anything like it's okay to have a violent video game but not okay to have a sexy video game what's wrong with yes. a sexy video game yeah, I think pr comics probably have a problem because for so long they've been associated with children's entertainment, mm -hmm. um, and I mean, still the vast majority of comics that are published um, in North America, uh, particularly in America, I think, are really for, for for children. So that's that's the problem. Yeah, you, but you, but that but you can't assume just because it's a comic it is for children, and obviously that's been the source of a lot of confusion with. Uh, you know, comic uh, retailers being taken to court because police walk in and they just assume it's a, a shop full of kids' stuff, and then they see something by Robert Crumb or by somebody else, and they they uh, have a problem. Does but that's the that's but that's the problem with the definition of comics. Yeah. Um, it is it is also a problem with the predominance of a particular kind of comic. I mean, I think if if the if the media of comics, if the world of comics was as wide as film for example you just wouldn't get that nobody assumes that a film is for children or for anybody a film is whatever that particular film is is uh, the response in Europe a lot different because you have the legacy of folks like Guido Crepax um, sure there's just, they're just not, not hung up about it there's no worry about it and there's no presumptions about it you know this particular graphic novel is this particular graphic novel there are no pre pre assumptions about it are there um, oh god yeah i was no, wondering are there um cartoonists that you've gone to that have worked on you know sexy books um that have kind of influenced how you approach this book sexy books sexy um, comic books <laughs> sexy book. uh I, I not really i mean there have been some that i've liked very much um and uh um, I can't. I mean, I can't really. I couldn't really alight on one. Obviously, Creepax and Manara are obvious ones, but I, I can't honestly see, honestly say that they were an influence on my doing this book. Uh, probably more of an influence were certain films um, by uh, people like Valerian Barocic who made some interesting sort of erotic films in the seventies. And um, there's a film called Licorice Quartet. Um, by Wesley Metzger, which I can't honestly say is a fantastic film, but it's really interesting. It's it's really interesting, and, and uh, that that one really stuck with me. Um, so it's that sort of thing, really. And mm -hmm. then, and then older films. Um, it's really interesting that at the birth of cinema, before the Hayes Code came in, before censorship really took on, before anybody really paid much attention to film, at the birth in the nineteen tens and twenties. 
there was lots of nudity everywhere, and there was just no worry about it. It was just part of the uh, the nature of the images that were being produced, and there was a lot, lots of nude photography being done. So that just became nude, nude cinema as well. Um, and it's not until you get into the sort of thirties that uh, suddenly it all gets timed up again, and um, there's big problems with, with uh, dealing with sexual subjects in films and, and nudity. So those early films are fantastic. Some of them are wonderful. Uh, um, I was trying to think of the one that uh, the famous one. Doctor uh, Faustus. Didn't that one have a lot of? No, no. There's there's one. Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, but uh, but certainly there there are, there are a handful of uh, silent films that are really really beautiful, and because they're silent films, they 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 they're not so literal. They're not as literal as a modern pornographic film where everything is you know just flesh. Everything's flesh coloured and it's just absolutely crushingly literal and brightly lit and awful. Um, these are uh, have a a real beauty and strangeness to them because they're black and white and they're f these strange flickery grainy images and you're not completely sure what, what's going on and beautiful light you know there's a, a real beauty to them I mean mm -hmm. that, again that's what I was hoping to get to a little bit with celluloid I, I wanted to try and have something that was beautiful and uh, would tickle the imagination as well as other parts of the body <laughs> <laughs> I've got some questions about kind of bigger work stuff um, of your past comics work, past artwork. Um, earlier you were touching on when you first started approaching Photoshop and how that really changed things for you. And I'm curious about the response at the time from contemporaries, from industry, about using Photoshop in creating comics and artwork. Mm -hmm. Were... Was it kind of, did people have challenges with what you were doing with it? Were people okay with it? Did you kind of have to, like, defend it because it was done on a computer at that point? Um, I've had all kinds of reactions. Um, uh, some people, obviously, I kept getting commissioning, so, commissioned, so I, I mean, a lot of people really liked seeing something new and unusual, and I had lots of questions of how things were being done uh, on a technical side. Um, I think the kind of work that I was doing, things like the Sandman covers, you know, it was appropriate. They, there was a dream, dreaminess and a uh, strangeness to the to the images, a slight surrealism to the images, and, and these layered uh, images with text floating above the images. All of this seemed to be kind of appropriate for those books. Um, so that was all good. I got occasionally people thought I was cheating. <laughs> Um, I think they assumed that there was a button that I was pressing to make it look photoshoppy or something. I don't know what they thought. Or, or uh, there was a, a Dave McKean filter, and I just pressed that, and it suddenly all went orange and grainy and vignetted at the edges. And that's not <laughs> um, so uh, I, you know, a few strange reactions there. I remember a French uh, in in Paris doing a panel. And somebody in the audience got up and said, comics cannot be done on a computer because comics, by definition, must be drawn. Um, and, you know, those sorts of things, you have to just try and, uh, well, work with a little bit. I mean, I just don't believe that. So maybe that's just a different belief. 
system. I think I don't think comics have to be drawn just as much as I don't think they have to be about superheroes or they have to have word balloons or any of these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think Photoshop is a using the computer is a great tool. Uh, it's a very powerful tool. Uh, it's allowed me to try many many things very quickly um, and save off versions and be a lot more daring. I think with choices that I can make because I can always undo them and all go back. Um, it's allowed me to play. I've just enjoyed it. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I've been sat here laughing because you, you can try so many things and you suddenly see things fresh for the first time. And you rarely get that when you're drawing. A, a drawing just takes a while to do and it doesn't really take you by surprise. Looking at somebody else's drawing does. Mm-hmm. But you don't really get that with your own work. But sudden changes in Photoshop can hit you in the same way as looking at somebody else's work for the first time. So I've got a great deal of positive things from Photoshop. Um, I try and keep it to a minimum because I like handmade, the look of the person's hand making it in there, in the image there somewhere. And the more, the t- the more you use Photoshop, the more it file, uh, filters that you use and the more drawing or painting you do actually in the program, the more it tends to look like a piece of plastic. Um, and I don't like that so much. So, just with, with for minimal intervention in an image or bringing it, bringing elements together in a collage or a final piece, I think it's fantastic. I interviewed uh, Al Columbia a while ago, and one of the things we talked about was when he was working on big numbers, um, and just the frustration and the tedium of working in this photorealism style. Um, and I get—I wonder for you if that transfer to to Photoshop for a part of the work really kind of helps save off or stave off um, just really going into those depths of being forced to do something that isn't completely—I don't know—free flowing. That makes sense. Um, well, I'm I'm very short patience anyway, so I tend to get bored very quickly, whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I tend to jump around a lot uh, and try and find ways and means and reasons to to uh, vary the style. And th- again, that's why I love comics so much. I mean, the point is, uh, of the story for me is to take you through the, the different emotions and different atmospheres of a story with the lines and the marks and the, and the colours and the meat gear and everything, the full palette of what's available to create images with. Um, the first book I did was, oh, well, the second book I did was called Black Orchid, and I did that in a pretty photorealistic style, um, for a reason, because it seemed that comics were stuck in this 1940s way of drawing people, mm-hmm. and I thought that was fantastic in 1940, but in 1986, which is where we were, it just seemed to be ridiculous. Uh, people were doing sort of photocopied version of a photocopied version of a photocopied version of something original in 1940 without really understanding its context. So I just felt it was time to come back to looking at real people again. Because the guys in 1940 did look at real people. And they adapted real people into these this style of drawing. But that looking back at reality had been lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I ended up doing Black Orchid in a photoreal style. I never intended to carry on doing that. It really <laughs> was just a just a, a sort of resetting of everything back to zero again. 
to and then build up from there. And so the books have continued to sort of get more and more, I, I hope, expressionistic and I think, you know, more more playful, more interesting. And But it's rooted in a sort of observation and interest and, uh, to a degree, knowledge of humans uh, and real things, real people, real light, real body language, real reality. Look, looking at a lot of your work, like especially I was looking through um, the was it the Barcelona sketchbook, and I really yeah. feel that uh, that Picasso influence like really as one of those things that kind of pushed you to like go into these other directions. Is that an accurate description? Yes, completely. Um, I mean, I really, really loved doing those little travel books. They're little little sketchbooks. Uh, whenever I'm in a in a in a, in a it, it happens to have been just European cities. Um, whenever I'm there for a while, I get a new sketchbook and just draw whatever's around, whatever passes in front of my face. Um, I'll make a little sketch of or uh, something and try and capture the spirit of the place and the artists whose work I see there and uh, the way the people move and the clothes that they wear. And that influences whether it's drawn in pen or pencil or with a brush pen or you know all of it it just completely comes from the place and the people and the food and the art that's there uh, it's not for anybody they're not uh, either self-published there's no deadline there's no forces on it other than just in the sheer enjoyment of drawing and um, looking and because of that I've been I've learned so much from them. They've re completely reignited my love of drawing, changed the way I draw, given me lots of new marks and lines and, and uh, textures and things that I can use in, in uh, a commercial job or my own books. So fantastically valuable thing to do. And also, uh, you know, I'm very bad at doing things for absolutely no reason. I'm very bad at just carrying a sketchbook around doing sketches for no reason that will never be seen by anybody if i know it's going to be a little book and i'm just going to make these drawings but it is going to be a little book uh, the impetus to do it and to keep on looking and keep on um making these things is very strong so it's a win-win situation all around i've really really loved doing these books how did you respond when you saw Baron Story's sketchbooks and see that he's doing one of those oh, every day? Oh, they're astonishing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, you know, I just could never do that. I mean, fortunately, some some of his sketchbooks are being uh, printed in some form or another. Mm -hmm. um, but his, I, obviously, the, the the basic impetus is is the same uh, of wanting to, of loving drawing and wanting to capture your experiences as you're going around. It's a fantastic aid memoir. You know, you can look back over these books and you instantly remember not only what you've seen because it's there in the book, but because when you draw, you really pay attention. You can remember the sounds and you can remember the music that was playing and you can remember the food, the way it tasted uh, in the restaurant that you were sitting at as you were sketching the people across the way. It's, it's it brings the sensations back incredibly clearly. So, you know, that basic impetus is the same but the fact that Baron can just endlessly do these astonishing books uh, to, to incredible detail with this little spidery writing going on and on about every little 
thought that goes goes there. I, I'm in awe of it, really. Uh, <laughs> as, and the fact that it, this is all done knowing that chances are nobody will ever see them, um, I just don't have that particular gene. Uh, I need to have them have some sort of purpose in the wider world. How did you um, first... Oh, sorry. No, go on. I was, how did you first come across his work? Because you're kind of one of those folks that were like saying, okay, check out this guy, he's really good. Um, well, I was a bit, when I was in art school, one of, the, one of the many things I found were the American illustration annuals that would come out every year from the New York Society of Illustrators. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, I discovered lots of them. My life changed completely in art school. It was a fantastic experience. But one of the things I found were these sets of illustrators annuals and I, I borrowed a lot from the library in art school and I bought a lot whenever I went to London and so I just got to know the names of the people whose work I liked and at the time at the, my start in art school I liked a lot of the guys from the when would it be late 50s and then 60s um, so uh, Bernie Fuchs and Robert Peake and David Grove and Robert Heindel and that sort of it's a kind of a photo photo reel but flattened out and beautifully composed and quite dynamic form of drawing and painting and Baron's story was one of them um, back when he was doing sort of Time magazine covers and covers for Dave Brubeck and The mm -hmm. Lord of the Flies um, so I can't actually remember how I found this out but I knew that he had a little exhibition in San Francisco when I was in doing a tour of America for my Batman book with Grant Morrison and so I managed to find out where the gallery was and he was going to be there and I went along and met him and by this point his style had changed completely um, and he'd become much more experimental and expressionistic and I absolutely loved it because by then my taste had changed as well I didn't really like the uh, that sort of uh, photo reel style so much anymore I liked Marshall Harrisman and Brad Holland and uh, Matt Mahoran and these this new breed of uh, more conceptual illustration. So I found his work there. I bought a bunch of uh, of the paintings that were in the show, and we've been firm friends ever since. Jazz has been a big influence on your work as well, and I'm wondering if that changed how you approached your work uh, when you really got into it because uh, I read somewhere that you'd originally been into darker music in your younger days, such like the industrial stuff, which you ended up doing album covers for, including uh, a fair amount of Vancouver acts. Um, and so here's how jazz worked into your work, because, I mean, Cages is very, very prominent, um, especially within the storytelling techniques. Um, well, music generally has been very uh, important. I... Uh, loved music uh, as a kid I had piano lessons I've always played piano um, I always worked with music on all the time and I started as a kid I liked kind of the, the pop rock stuff that was around at the time and I liked a lot of uh, the more sort of uh, you know stranger rock bands that were in England at the time um, but the whenever I went to keyboard shops and things like that there, there would always be a list of you know some people whose names are recognised like Keith Emerson and 
Patrick Moraz and these people, but then there'll be these other guys like Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock and Joe Zavin, who I didn't know. So I investigated that, and that's how I got into into jazz when I was in my teens. And then I started playing in jazz rock bands um, and doing sort of jazz festivals locally. Um, and so it's always been really important to me. And and then I explored everything else as well. So um, I I love most music. There's a big gap in my music taste, which is the sort of mainstream stuff that stuff that's in the charts mm-hmm. means nothing to me. But all the stuff around the edges and orchestral music and folk music from around the world and everything else I really love and I've always loved jazz um, and the fact that music goes straight in it's not uh, it doesn't have to be decoded really in any way you, it, it, it just has an immediate emotional effect on you it's all I could ever aspire to with a picture really or a, or a story or a book or a film um, that condition of condition of music, you know. Um, so yeah, very important. When you do an album cover, say like a Frontline Assembly or a Skinny Puppy cover, do you listen to the album first, or just kind of how do you approach that as as a gig? Um, w- w- yeah, whenever possible. Sometimes it's just not possible. But sometimes they they're not finished working on it, and um, I can't get to hear anything. But I, or, or, almost always, I've been able to uh, hear even if it's rough mixes or just a couple of tracks um, I've been able to hear the album and uh, and then just have a response to it and even if it's music that I maybe wouldn't ordinarily listen to um, mm-hmm. you just have because it's music you just have a reaction and end up drawing something or planning something um, or just seeing something in your head that you then have to create in some way that's appropriate for the music and captures the music. So my, the covers that I've done tend to go along that route rather than be very clever covers uh, or very literary or, you know, looking at the lyrics and trying to explain the lyrics. I <laughs> tend not to do that. Um, I tend to just have an emotional reaction and try and create an image that captures that atmosphere. I don't think they're most brilliant lyrics sometimes. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. you know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe not in uh, in sort of uh, industrial uh, music, but you know, some of the other covers I've done for people like John Cale or something like that. Yeah. You know, his lyrics are interesting, yeah. but uh, but I still just try and go for a uh, a, a feeling that, that that the cover gives you when you when you get it, open it up, and you're 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 seeing the music already through a filter of that image. It's. It's interesting how um, the covers you've done for these bands really almost set a tone of how the genre represented itself at a certain point. It was, yes. I didn't realize it at the time. It was it was a, a very particular moment in, in a particular kind of music history. And uh, yes, it just seems to have been uh, uh, captured by those that bunch of covers. I've, I haven't done many covers recently at all. It just seemed to be a, a sudden spike. In, in a couple of years, I did you know, 30, 40 covers. Um, and then it all went away again, uh, as I guess, you know, the, the music changed and taste changed. I think you stayed doing frontline covers, though, correct? Yeah, I'm still doing frontline covers. Very happy to, to still be doing those. Uh, and I think that probably, you know, says something about Bill as well. You know, he's continued to change and, and has been happy to change. He hasn't really settled on just one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a good guy. 
They're uh, we we have mutual friends. Ah, uh, really? Yeah. Uh, Chris Peterson is a uh, was a close friend of mine, and we've ah. actually done projects together. Right. That that many people will not hear. <laughs> um, mythology has worked into your work, um, and there's a couple that stuck out to me. I see Icarus a lot, and uses of Icarus themes. Yes, I uh, suppose so. Is that a, a story that stuck out to you? Like, why why do why am I seeing him? Um. Well, yes. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure the. Uh, that iconic story is uh, is, is a, a good way of explaining certain things of, about overreaching or you know trying uh, to uh, uh, you know aim towards something that's that's beyond you. Um, that's the obvious story, uh, the obvious image for that. Um, so yeah, I think I think that has come up, but I think it's more it's more that. There's something about adding wings to a person, or horns to a person, or uh, the, the the face of a cat, or it's just quite a primal thing. There's something about merging humans with the uh, aspects of animals um, mm-hmm. that touches something quite primal. I don't think it's religious or anything like that. I think it's to do with um, uh, those, you know, very um, oh strong primary feelings we we get about nature when you when you're in the presence of an animal, a big cat or something like that, you just feel something um, bigger than you. Very yes, very strong. Um, I've always kept cats, and if you look into the face of a cat, you just expect it to talk to you. There's mm-hmm. something about the face of a cat and the eyes of a cat. They, there's an intelligence there, and the way it looks at you, you just expect it to start talking to you. you and I, I think that's wonderful. Um, and so that's why, why I've used that image a lot. Um, that's very pronounced in cages. Yeah. That's yeah, and, and it carries on. I, I keep using that image all the time. Again, it's, it's one of those personal... You, you end up with a personal dictionary of images that... that um, I kind of hope and uh, um, I presume to a degree that other people get the gist. They may not know exactly why I'm using this particular thing, but you get the gist of why, uh, of what this means. Uh, you know, a man with wings, um, if he's in a particular pose, the fact that he has wings, it, 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 it already makes you feel that he's striving for something or there's a there's a sort of latent energy there or capability to do something you see what i mean mm-hmm. so um you just hope that people pick up on on those images and and uh, understand another one uh, especially with cages at the end you kind of touch on the tower of babel um which kind of holds its feet in two different areas there's like the biblical allegory there's also you uh, utilize uh, tarot images a lot, or work with tarot images, and I'm kind of wondering about that that choice. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very similar. They're, I love the. I mean, I don't believe in the use of. You know, I don't think there's anything uh, supernatural about mm-hmm. tarot cards or tarot readings or anything like that. Uh, but I love the crazy absurdity of trying to compact 
the entirety of human knowledge into 78 playing cards. Uh, and I love the idea of trying to build a tower to, uh, in, you know, uh, incorporate everything that humans can do and reaches into the stars and reaches God. I think these are wonderful, crazy, fabulous human uh, endeavours. Um, and that sort of overreaching uh, quality, again, is just something I keep coming back to. I think they're, they're fabulous stories, and that's why they're so strong, is because you can keep on coming back to them and revisiting them and reusing them and, and, and uh, retelling them in your own way. For your own, make your own point. Overreaching, kind of, that idea of overreaching also makes me think of another quote I saw. In, I think it was in um, Pictures That Tick, where you, and I'm totally going to get this wrong, probably, but I'm going to try anyways, where uh, talking about Miles Davis, where he would rather make horrible music with a horrible band than do something he's already done. Yeah, I think I think Keith Jarrett is famous for saying that. Um, and you know, obviously, Miles Davis and Picasso; these are people who epitomise the idea of an artist. Uh, for me, somebody who who just doesn't repeat themselves, who is continuously looking for a, a new way of looking at the world. Um, and that, that's again, that's all all I could hope for, really. Perfect. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Okay. When my mind is filled with dreaming or evasive and I would stand inside 
Stir 